We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. What people have to understand about this place is that it was ruled by a prophet. It was a theocracy, and the prophet spoke for God. So if the prophet said you needed to do something, that was God saying you needed to do that. And that's why so many of the people in this town, even when things started to get worse and worse, even when Elisa was faced with the prospect of marrying her 19-year-old cousin at the age of 14, they stayed and they did that because it was a commandment. That's Ash Sanders, who with Sarah Venturi co-hosts a remarkable podcast series called Unfinished Short Creek. It's remarkable for the riveting story it tells of people struggling to recover from a traumatic schism in their community as it devolved into a cult of personality. It's a story sensitively and beautifully told. This is so fascinating to have you both on the show because you tell a story in your 10-part podcast. I'm so eager to talk to you about it because the story you tell is amazing. And the, the way you got to tell the story, what you went through, is just as interesting to me. It's about Short Creek. What is Short Creek? What was Short Creek when you got involved with it? So Short Creek is a fundamentalist town on the border of Utah and Arizona that was settled by fundamentalist Mormons when they split off from the mainstream church, and they were looking for a place to practice their religion in peace. Um, and that meant to practice polygamy and to practice communal living and to do it in a place that they felt was safe from the outside world, which was kind of constantly kind of trying to come in and, and split them up and, and challenge their faith. So um, it was a town founded, you know, in the 1930s by these folks who wanted to build kind of the kingdom of God on earth right in the middle of America. How many people were in the town at that time? Sarah, you know more about these numbers. Can you say? Yeah, I don't actually know the exact numbers. I think it started with just a small handful of families and kind of grew from there. And it's actually um, two towns, one on, like, they, they straddle the state line between Utah and Arizona. So there's one town in Arizona and one town in Utah, um, 
And they, yeah, I think I, I think it was basically just a handful of families at the beginning, but it's also in the middle of this gorgeous, picturesque desert. I mean, it's surrounded by these red rock cliffs. Um, I live in Phoenix, and to get there, I actually have to drive around the Grand Canyon to get there. So it's it's just in the middle of this gorgeous country, but very, very isolated. When you got there to start working on the story about how many people were in this group, I think by the time Ash and I started reporting on this community, a lot of people had left or been kicked out of the FLDS church, but many were still living in town or had left and then come back to town. But I would say, you know, it was a few thousand people who were living in the community around the time that Ash and I started reporting. But this is what really fascinates me about your story, is how so many people, not a couple of dozen, but hundreds could fall under the sway and remain there as things got worse and worse. And, and just as an indication of how bad things were, the, the, the leader was the prophet, right, called the prophet. And he was the representative of God, I take it. Somehow God had chosen him. The story of the, the woman who recalls when she was 14 years old and had to get married, did she become an important source of information for you? Yes, absolutely. Um, her story was actually the first story I really read about um, from Shore Creek. And I think, you know, we she's one of the main characters in our show, and she's in the first episode because we really feel that Elisa Wall is her name, captures so much of what is happening in Shore Creek. Um, she captures the story of growing up in a fundamentalist um, group and actually enjoying it for some of the time. And then... Um, and then experiencing the rise of Warren Jeffs and the religion getting stricter and stricter and Warren abusing more and more of his power and starting to do things like create really elaborate rules and loyalty tests and starting to marry older men to younger and younger women, girls and women. And, um, you know, she, she also kind of embodies this experience of what people have to understand about this place is that it was ruled by a prophet. It was a theocracy, and the prophet spoke for God. So if the prophet said you needed to do something, that was God saying you needed to do that. And that's why so many of the people in this town, even when things started to get worse and worse, even when Elisa was faced with the prospect of marrying her 19-year-old cousin at the age of 14, they stayed and they did that because it was a commandment. Let's listen to what Alyssa Wall says about that, which is how you begin the first episode of the podcast. I was 14 years old when I was told that, that I was to be married. And at some point in my life, I knew that I was going to be married because that was the only path that I got as a woman. And I really did want it, but just not at 14. And Warren was the one that told me that I needed to move forward with this marriage. Because if I didn't, then I was no longer welcome in the community. And I found myself driving with my future husband and his family and my mother and Warren Jeffs and his posse of religious leaders to a dingy hotel where I was married to my first cousin inside of a hotel room. There was this moment where my mom stood up and took my hand because they couldn't get me to say I do. They couldn't get me to agree to this marriage. And she stood up and held my hand and just gripped it. And I had this overwhelming realization that it wasn't just my salvation hanging in the balance, it was hers. 
and it was my little sisters, and it was my older sisters, it was my entire family, and that we would all go to hell if I chose to fight this any longer. I think that that story is so interesting because, um, you know, obviously, it, you know, it's heartbreaking, and we can all imagine kind of being in that position or 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 seeing someone we love in that position and just being horrified. Um, but also, I think the way that she's able to explain that that you know she went through with this thing that was so difficult and so painful, and that she really, really didn't want to do because she firmly believed that she was risking not only her own salvation but the salvation of her family, which is a lot to put on a fourteen-year-old. As I remember, the husband became more and more abusive. And as he became more abusive, who did she have to go to? Who could she appeal to? That's what's so disturbing about the story is that, you know, in the town, Warren Jeffs, he was the prophet. He was the mayor. He headed up the economy. He was the community leader. Um, He was everything. And he had all of his you know, kind of cronies who were supporting what he was doing. And so when he started to make these rules, he'd already kicked out so many of the people who didn't agree with him and other people feared him. So Elisa really didn't have almost anywhere to go. Um, She went to Warren Jeffs and uh, other leaders in the community multiple times and said, I'm being abused. I'm terrified. This is a horrible relationship and I need to get out. And instead of listening to her, they questioned her faith and they continued to prop up her husband and say he was a righteous priesthood man, as they would say in that community. And so she really, I think that's one of the things that happens and that Warren Jeffs took advantage of is he isolated people, even inside of families, even inside of close-knit communities, so that when somebody had doubts or when they were going through something horrific, they really had Nobody that they could talk to about it. No one was safe to talk to about it. And and just to give you a sense of the scope of control, too, you know, um, so when Ash said, like, Warren Jeffs was the mayor, he wasn't actually the mayor, but he was also in control of who became appointed to all the positions of power. So really, like, all of the... Uh, The people in power in town, in the church, in the government, in the police, like all of them were um, appointed by or recommended by Warren Jeffs as the prophet. So he had an immense amount of control over civil and religious life. So that brings me to your part of the story, because in such a closed society, how did you manage to get in and report on on the the structure of it, the feelings the people had, the uh, the experiences they went through, and I think you spent more than four years reporting on this community, right? How did you do it? How did you get access? The the short answer is we spent a lot of time there, so it was a very slow process of really getting to know people, um, trying to show them that they could trust us, and then also as part of the reporting for this story, um, I embedded in the community and lived there for three months, so that was a part of it too. I, you know, Ash and the rest of our team were taking reporting trips, and we were all spending long periods of time there. But we, I also wanted to live there and see what life was like day to day. Where did you stay? 
So I actually stayed um, in the house that once belonged to the former prophet. So Warren Jeff's father, his name was Rulin Jeff's, had a very large house in town that's now owned by ex-believers and has been turned into a kind of one section of it is a hotel and one section of it is apartments. So I actually lived in the former prophet's house. So it was used as the home of the former prophet and his wives and children? Exactly. So I stayed in one of the rooms that presumably would have been one of his wives' rooms. How many wives did he have? Oh, Ash, do you know um, the total number of wives that Rulin had? I think it was upwards of 60, but dozens. I'm I'm stunned. (laughs) And the lives of the women were completely controlled by the husbands and by the prophet and the other leaders. I grew up Mormon, so we had some similar teachings to this. Um, But in, in Mormonism and in fundamentalist Mormonism, only men receive what's called the priesthood, which is essentially the power to act for God. Growing up, I was taught what the FLDS were taught, which is that the prophet speaks for God. He only makes the right decisions. If he tells you something, he's speaking from God, and it's the right thing to do. And if you are doubting him, then you are doubting God. And so that logic leaves very little room for disagreement, for critical thinking, um, for even expressing your doubts to others or even yourself. And so this idea that it'll all work out in heaven is essentially what it was. And so I think the FLDS have that principle as well to an even greater extreme. And it's combined with the fact that, you know, they live in an isolated community that's very remote. And um, as Warren just came to power, he increasingly took away their ability to engage with the outside world or outside thoughts in any way. And I think that's a recipe for, you know, ceding control over your thoughts to another person and also maybe not even realizing that you're doing it. And also something to remember is that um, the kind of the outside world, the government, the states, uh, the people in surrounding communities have not historically been very kind to this community. I mean, I think for so many people, polygamy is such a foreign thing, and a lot of people find it really distasteful and problematic. And so over the years, the states and the federal government have have really come after, especially the states of Utah and Arizona, have come after this community. I mean, the community has been raided. Families have been, um, you know, separated. Men in the community were put in jail. Women in the community were brought far away to Phoenix, which is six hours away. I mean, there were a lot of traumatic things that happened on the outside. So if you can imagine all of the things Ash is saying, and then at the same time, the prophet and other church leaders leadership can point to all of these historical examples and say, you see, the outside world really is a terrible place, and everybody really does hate us, and this is the safest place for you. Then it just reinforces all of those things even more, and I think that's how you get that kind of thought silo that you can't get out of. What happened at a certain point the community got more democratic. Is that right? And and if that's right, how did that happen? 
Uh, that is right. And it happened because of a bunch of grassroots efforts by people who had left or been kicked out of the church, ex-believers. So uh, what happened was in 2017, um, after the Department of Justice had sued the towns and, and found that they were, in fact, guilty of religious discrimination, the courts required a, a bunch of reforms to make things uh to make things to make the towns compliant uh, with U.S. law and with the Constitution, and I think there were some ex-believers at that moment who saw this as an opportunity to have, for the first time ever in the community, a free and fair election, and so they organized as a community. They got together as a group. They decided who they thought should run for office. They decided they were going to support those people. Um, you know, they got out the vote. They got people registered to vote. I mean, they kind of used the tools of democracy that that may be used in other communities frequently, but that hadn't been used up to that point uh, in Short Creek. And in 2017, for the first time ever, there was a woman who is an ex-believer who was elected as mayor of Hilldale, Utah, which is the Utah town in Short Creek. And it was a pretty remarkable historic moment. I Luckily, I was there. I was following this election, and I was at her house the night she won and got to watch everyone, you know, overjoyed and toasting to change. And it was a pretty, a pretty amazing thing to see happen in real time. And it's also pretty fascinating to think about because, you know, this town— for decades had been a theocracy. You know, it had been run by the church, everything, the politics of the community, the economy, family life, all run by the church. And all of a sudden, almost overnight, you have the government come in and say, you've got to be a democracy now. And people are like, okay, well, <laughs> let's do this. And you have people who have, you know, for years, the prophet would just say, this person's going to be on the city council. This person's going to be the mayor. And all of a sudden, people in the town have a choice about who they want to be in office. And the town is also really split. A lot of ex-believers are very excited for democracy, but a lot of believers don't want it to be that. They want it to be God's land. They want it to be a theocracy. They like the old way. So it also really divided the town um, at a really crucial moment. And, and this is all happening, you know, while Donald Trump is being elected to president of the United States. So there's it's this wild kind of microcosm where people are trying democracy in a really volatile, divided political climate um, at the same time as nationally we're going through all these paroxysms of of choice and power. Yeah, I I think the, the comparison is really evident as you hear the story of Short Creek. And you have in our country at large the idea that half of the people think the other half are deluded and don't have the right information. And that's true of both halves. And it sounds like you had that there. You had, on the one hand, they wanted to hear what God wanted them to do, and the other people wanted to hear what the people wanted to do. How is it being resolved there now locally? Yeah, I mean, that was the question for me in this show. Is it possible for people who have experienced so much trauma and who have been so divided at points to come together when they can't even agree on the basic form of government. You know, we talk about disagreeing within a democracy. They were disagreeing about whether they should have a democracy. Um, and so I think the democracy, the election was not just an election. It was a referendum on the community's past and its future. Um, so there was a lot of bitterness. There were a lot of people we talked to um, there were some believers we talked to who said, you know, everything about this is wrong. 
this is our land. Ex-believers shouldn't even be living here. They shouldn't be coming back, and they definitely shouldn't be in government. So it's a very divided place. And I think what's fascinating about it is that unlike, you know, some of the rest, uh, parts of the rest of America, the people there don't give up because they're all related and they're all sharing this tiny patch of land in the desert. And so they're more determined than almost any group of people I've ever spoken to about how to resolve this, even though sometimes it feels unresolvable. When we come back from our break, Ash Sanders and Sarah Ventry tell me about their own struggle to maintain a reporter's perspective while being so deeply and intimately involved in the lives of the people of Short Creek. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free, but you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn that thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton. For the stay. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. 
This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to Ash Sanders and Sarah Ventry and their story of the community of Short Creek. What happened to Alyssa Wall, the girl who was forced to marry her cousin at the age of 14? What, what, what was the rest of her story after the marriage went so horribly bad? So about three or four years after she had been in the marriage, she left. I mean, she she ran away. You know, it took her a long time, I think, to figure out what her identity was outside of the church and outside of this community and to begin um, rebuilding and and really building from scratch her life the way she wanted it to be. What is really interesting is that eventually she chose to come back to the community. So despite all of the pain and all of the trauma and all of the heartache that she had experienced, she moved back and she decided that she wanted to be a part of building this community up and making it something different than it was. And it's also fascinating because uh, she actually was one of the people who brought Warren Jess to justice. Because of her underage marriage, she sued him and um, brought him to court, and he was convicted. And so, you know, she is seen by many believers in the community, and even some ex-believers, as this potster, you know, this person who who tore the town apart. And she's coming back into this town where a lot of people hate her, and and she's actually trying to make change. So she was involved in an election, um, in that first election that we just talked about, um, trying to get out the vote. And she's getting out the vote to people who kind of hate her guts. So it's, again, this interesting story about polarization and elections and people trying to bridge these huge divides. And, you know, it takes a lot of bravery and resilience to 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 do that, to live in that small of a town um, with that hostile of an environment and to try to make change when a lot of people don't want you to make it. Why don't we listen to Alyssa again now, talking about how she coped with her return to Short Creek. I made it about the place. Short Creek was the pain. Short Creek was the reason I had dealt with so many years of PTSD or night terrors or whatever these things were. And to have that that reality check within myself to realize that it wasn't the place, it was the people, was really valuable because it allowed me to decompartmentalize Short Creek for what it was, to see Short Creek as the beautiful place that it is. For so many people, whether they were in the FLDS or recently left the FLDS, I was such a theme of pain for them. You know, it was Elisa Wall that was persecuting the, the faiths. It was Elisa Wall that was preventing all of them from going, going to heaven. And so for so many people, I was the only representation that they could pinpoint their pain on. I'm interested to know how involved you got in their process of reformulating their town, their community. It must have been tempting meeting the people who wanted to bring about change. It must have been tempting to support them, to be involved in change. But would, if you did, would, wouldn't that get in the way of your reporting and the trust people placed in you? Yeah, I think that is um, one of the most difficult things about doing this kind of reporting, um, especially where you're living in a community with people or spending lots and lots of time with them, um, being vulnerable with them, asking them to be vulnerable with you. You become very invested in people's lives and families and stories. Um, the approach that I think I tried to take, especially while I was living there, was um, that I I didn't 
want to see myself as a participant, but I wanted to see myself as an active observer in as many things as possible. And so if someone told me about this amazing effort that they were doing to to try to create something new in the community or to get out the vote or something like that, I would follow along and record. Or I would say, can I come watch what you're doing? Or you know, I'm going to come to that meeting. I'm going to come to your project at the park. And so I wasn't, you know, the one helping build the wall at the park or helping get out the vote, but I wanted to document it. And I and I think that one of the coolest things about being a journalist is that we get to be present for these moments that are often very, very private for people. Ash, was that true for you too? Were you were you tempted to get more involved and did you manage to stay objective? That's a fascinating question. Um I think because of my connection to Mormonism, I knew I wasn't coming in as a neutral person. I was coming in with a lot of knowledge and a lot of emotions around that. And so there were times, you know, when we'd be interviewing somebody who had left the church and they would be describing their process of leaving and I would be crying and Sarah would be crying, even if, you know, she didn't have the exact same experience. And um, I knew also sometimes when we were interviewing believers and they would say certain things about why they didn't think ex-believers should be there. It was very reminiscent of things that I heard a lot from Mormon leaders. So it was an emotional experience. And I think what we tried to do as a result is we tried to acknowledge that it was an emotional experience. If you listen to the show, there are lots of moments where Sarah and I are pretty transparent and vulnerable about how we reacted to different sources. And we thought that that was a more honest way of telling an emotional story than to pretend we had no stake in it. But we also really tried to go in knowing we know who our listeners are going to cheer for. They're going to cheer for the people building democracy and the XFLDS woman who wins, right? Um, and and that's great. We want those people to be full characters. Um, but we also wanted to really get behind the eyes of FLDS believers and show people why they believe what they do and why to them what they say and think is logical and important. And I think that's the other way we try to kind of create um, balance in the show is is not through pretending to be kind of hands-off, but really hands-on and, and, and trying to be in as many minds as possible and put those in the episodes. How transparent were you? Did you tell them stories about your lives as well as trying to get them to tell you stories about theirs? Yeah, absolutely. I remember one moment it's it's actually in the show um but it was one of the moments that really stuck with me through the whole process of reporting we were talking with Donia Jessup who you know is the now the mayor the XFLDS mayor of Hilldale Utah and um she was talking about the process of leaving and the process of thinking wait is everything i thought was true not true is everything i ever believed a lie and she talked about being glad that she was out of her community, but also feeling extremely lonely and like she didn't really belong in the outside world. And every word she was saying was just ringing me like a bell. You know, it was just, that's how I felt leaving. And I just, I started to cry and I shared with her, that's how I felt. I I understand what you're talking about. And we had a very beautiful moment and, and then she moved on and talked about other things. So I think, I think we tried to be as human as possible um, flesh and blood, like reporting, is really, I think, what we tried to do because we felt that that would help us tell a more honest story about the town, about ourselves, and about what people believe. Because belief is so visceral, it's so emotional, and so you can't tell it without emotion. I think 
one of the best things about this story is that I think everybody can see themselves in some part of it at, at a different time in the story. And we were no exception to that. So we wanted to put that out there too. You know, what we're talking about now makes me think again of our nation where we're in a way divided into the believers and unbelievers in a, in a different a different aspect of that. Did you have experiences talking to the believers where you felt you had discovered a way to listen to one another in in a way that we're not able to in the nation as a whole. I mean, we, we regard each other with scorn. You know, one of the things Ash and I talked a lot about that we found really tricky, that we also found to be parallel with, you know, the conversation we're having nationally, especially around the election, is that for some believers— accepting basic facts about what really happened is not part of what they're able to do because of their religious views. So we talked to people who said, you know, Warren Jeffs didn't sexually abuse anyone. That's all a lie. I mean, we know that that's not true. We know that there's evidence that he did. Um, and and yet this was a part of their worldview. So I think it, <laughs> there was a lot of time that I spent kind of considering what the person said and thinking about how they got to that place and why they feel that way and if I could understand, you know, why it's so important for them to deny those basic facts, then maybe I could understand them better. And I I think we did try really hard to do that and to try to help our listeners be able to see that perspective because the reality is most journalists don't speak to FLDS folks. They're they're unable to do it. And we thought that that was really important. But at the same time, we did want to acknowledge that in order to have a conversation with someone, especially someone who you want to come to some sort of understanding with, if you can't start on the solid ground of accepting the most basic facts with one another, then I think it's really hard to get to that point. I think, too, maybe the challenge in the interviews was also the challenge in the town and the challenge in America, which is how do you balance empathy and accountability? How do you listen to somebody and understand why they believe what they believe, but hold them accountable to facts, hold them accountable to maybe what they've done or what their beliefs are and the impact of their beliefs? Um, how do we do that? You know, how does the community of Short Creek do that? What role does forgiveness play? What role does justice play? And then how do we do that in America? And I think we can tend to go to one extreme or, or another and say, oh, let's just empathize and not admit the injustices that have happened, or let's only talk about justice and not talk about the repair that needs to be done. So I thought Short Creek was a fascinating place to report on from the process to the content because it's all about what America is struggling with right now. One last thought, because we're running out of time. Did either of you or both of you feel you had been changed in any way by this experience you went through over years communicating with this community? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I had a very hard time articulating it when I was living there, but uh, being immersed in this community and being immersed in the stories of the people that we spoke with got me feeling a little bit lost in some ways. I, I I started questioning all kinds of things about myself, about, you know, whether I was the kind of person I wanted to be, about how I needed to be more accountable to other people in my life or to my community. Um, 
it really, I think, has made me become very, very self-reflective and see things in a in a much more multi-dimensional way than I was able to see things before. Um, and and I think that, you know, it's also helped me realize that even if there are people who seem like they have a very different set of experiences than me, then there are often still things that I can relate to. And I was pretty amazed at some of the um, the ways that we were able to relate and the parallels that we were able to draw with some of the people we talked to. But yeah, I felt like I got really lost and it took me a while to kind of come back to myself. And I think I now tend to um, tend to see all of these situations where we're talking to people who disagree with us or who are different than us as as much more complicated and multidimensional, which I think in some ways is wonderful and in some ways is more of a struggle, but I'm grateful for it. You know, I think what happened for me is I had, a, you know, another reckoning with my history as a Mormon. And I left I left 13 years ago, and you kind of you go through a phase, you get angry, you get cynical, you don't care, whatever. And then I think what this made clear for me is you know, the beliefs you were raised with, the people you were raised with and by, they're with you for life. And it's going to keep coming up and coming up and coming up. And as so many characters in the show reckon with their own past and how to make peace and this kind of complicated relationship with that past, I felt like I went through the same process and realized, you know what? I used to reject this, but this is me. I'm a cultural Mormon, and that's where I came from, and that's the lens I see from, and that's the complicated story that's going to follow me through my life. And uh, so I guess it was kind of form and content. You know, the people were going through something similar that I started going through as I started asking questions about it. So we end our show with seven quick questions. Why don't we start with you, Ash? What do you wish you really understood Hmm. I wish I understood <laughs> animal consciousness. <laughs> Sarah? I I really wish I understood what comes after this life. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong, Ash? On my better days, I try to ask them what emotions are getting in the way of us talking about the facts. And on other days, I just send lots of text messages to my family text thread with documentaries. <laughs> How about you, Sarah? I think I try to say it gently. I try. want to say it in a way that someone could possibly maybe receive that information and actually internalize it, which I think is always a fine line to walk. Ash, what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, man. I love that. Um Someone in college, while I was leaving Mormonism, asked me not, like, why do I believe what I believe or believe in the prophet? But he just said, why do you believe in leaders at all? And that's really stuck with me. Oh, that's interesting. Still working that out? So, yeah, probably for a while. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Sarah? You know, 
I don't, I can't remember now if it actually was in the form of a question, but I was standing, um, sometimes when I get really excited or interested in something, I, I can just be very, very still. And I was, um, I was actually reporting in this community a few years ago and I was at an event and I was standing really, really still just trying to take in the, like a scene of what was happening. There were a bunch of people in the park and somebody walked up to me and I think he said something like, are you a painting? Like he, he was like amazed that I was so still and just said, I've never seen anyone stand that still before. <laughs> Ash, how do you stop a compulsive talker? I mean, I think I just lean in. I just, uh, talk, I just talk till they're done talking, maybe. <laughs> Wear them out. How about you, sir? I don't. I let them talk. I just, I, I have been known to sit in interviews for hours and hours because someone just wanted to be talking and not stopping, and usually I just let it happen. Let's say it comes back one day that we're sitting at di a dinner party with a table full of people, and you're next to someone you never met. How do you start up a real conversation with that person? Ask you first. Um, I really like asking people What's something that someone has said to you, like maybe even in passing, that has really never left your mind? It might be small, but had this really outsized impact on the way you think about things. So I'd probably ask them You that. ask the other person that question. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's like you give them these seven questions. That's <laughs> it, yeah. I, it's funny because I come from a family where we call it a very around-the-circle family, and every dinner it's like a billion emotional questions like this. So we're good. That's what I do to other people. I seven-question them. So, Sarah, how do you start up a real conversation? Oh, well, I'll probably poach some of your questions is how I'll do it. But I think— um, Oh, I think I probably maybe ask someone like, uh, you know, about about something that I think might be really important to them, like about their family or about about what they love or what they care about. I I think I don't know what the exact question is, but you know, um, I don't know. I I think maybe what's driving you right now, right this moment. Next, the last question, Ash. What gives you confidence? Um, I think. <laughs> I was trying to start a conversation. <laughs> um, I think uh, reading everything I can and talking to as many people as I can about it. How about you, Sarah? Seeing other people who I admire do inspiring things. I get a lot of confidence from um, watching other people and, and feeling like I can be, you know, part of that same, um, part of that same kindred spirit set. Okay, last question, Ash. What book changed your life? Whew. Uh, I would say The Golden Notebook by Doris Lessing. Um, I read it at a really pivotal time, and it's all about like gender and women being seen as crazy and writing as a way out. Um, and yeah, I, I think about that book more days than not. Hmm. How about you, Sarah? The book for me is called Girls to the Front, and it's actually all about riot girl music and women starting bands and uh, taking up space and using music as a way to uh, process other things that happen in the world and understanding power. Um, it inspired me to pick up an instrument and start try to start a band, even though I didn't know how to play the instrument. And it also inspired me to do um, work with an organization that um, 
has rock and roll camps for for girls and and trans and gender nonconforming youth. But it that made me feel powerful. That one really hit me. It's really interesting to me that you both have read books that threw light on more power for women. And you wound up studying this town where women had no power and saw a change into one that was more on an equitable footing. Does that occur to you? Yeah, I think what, what that makes me think is that I don't actually ever think that women, I don't think women have no power. I think they have secret power and they find ways to, uh, manifest it. And I think that's what happened in Short Creek. Um, Women had ways of surviving, of being resilient. I think power can look like so many things depending on the severity of the situation, and then it breaks through and becomes something else. And I also think it helped us focus on resiliency rather than um, just the, the part of the narrative that's around being a victim or experiencing something awful. You know, I think we also both were really drawn to people who came back, who were resilient, who built new things. And I don't think that was an accident. Yeah, that as we speak about it, that sounds like the trajectory of your story is rising up, working it out, not not being a victim, but becoming champions. And that's yeah. great. That's, that's Congratulations on the work you've done on this. And thank you for this conversation. I've had a great time talking with you. Yeah, thank you so much. It was awesome talking to you. Bye, everyone. Bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alder Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Ash Sanders and Sarah Ventry's podcast, Unfinished Short Creek, is a production of Witness Docs. All 10 episodes are now available for free downloading. And its evocative sound design is the work of an old friend of Clear and Vivid's, Senior Editor at Stitcher, John Delore. John also records what he calls literary-minded folk rock Americana under the name The Reverend John Delore. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Deborah Tannen. Her new book is an intimate portrait of her father called Finding My Father. She's also the author of the hugely influential books on communicating called Conversational Style and Talking from 9 to 5. 
everything we say has these two levels. Does it create connection or does it put someone uh, maybe one up or one down with respect to the other? And those two levels are always there. Um, I have examples of many conversations where women are more likely to focus on the does this bring us closer or put us farther apart. Men are somewhat more likely to focus on does this put me in a one up or a one down position. But they're both always there. Deborah Tan. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.